Welcome to Today, Maybe Forever. I'm Floyd Hall, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with artist, curator, administrator, woman of the world, <laughs> Teresa Bramlett-Reeves. Teresa, how are you? Hi, I'm fine. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Glad to be here. Glad to have some time with you. Always glad to have some time with you. Um, when, when are you at your best? Oh, I have different bests. Um, okay. I, I, my best thinking is often in the middle of the night. Um, I solve a lot of problems that way, visually and mentally. But um, it's, I mean, it's a good question. I, I don't know. I think I would almost have to rely on other people's impressions, and I, which is probably a poor substitute for my own opinion. But um, I'm at my best, I guess, when I'm looking at art, making art, sitting by myself. <laughs> I'm going to stop there. <laughs> was hard you know in that respect uh, but a lot of fun and I think everybody that has this job had some ambition on some level and yeah. so there was always the kind of natural rotation there too but it, mostly it's because it's a non-profit I mean I think when I was hired to be the gallery director and curator I was making $25,000 a year and this was in 96? 96 okay so even in 96 so <laughs> I was trying to like do the math in my head, like in 2018 dollars. That's still pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, but it, you know, I ended up. I, I felt like I got a lot accomplished here, and and somewhere in between, I realized that I was so used to talking about art in New York, and every, you know, everybody I knew was an artist or involved in the art world, and so that was kind of everything. And when I moved down here, there were a lot of interested, interesting artists working, but they were not necessarily talking about art, having dialogues about it. So I um, decided if I was going to stay in the art field, maybe I should get a PhD. And, and that way I could also get some conversation going about art again. <laughs> So I made the decision to do that and go to Georgia. And so I was still working here when I started. So I know, here's, my, here's the, uh, the genius of my ability to negotiate. I actually negotiated for working less time without dropping any of my responsibilities and getting less money so that I could uh, take two afternoons off to drive to Athens to start my PhD. Wow. Yeah, so smart. I'm so good at this. <laughs> but uh, so it, it, at some point, pretty soon into that process, uh, Joe Pergini, who had been working with me as a preparator here, and we had overlapped some in New York without knowing each other, and we just kind of had an instant rapport. He uh, said that there was a job open at Georgia State, so I switched to teaching painting for about 10 years. 
And so this was what year? 2001. 2001, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, so you were there probably the same time as, as Larry Walker? Yeah, uh, he was just leaving. Just leaving. I knew okay. Larry mm-hmm. uh, because I had worked with him here. Mm-hmm. and um, But he was just leaving, and uh, there was a photographer whose name I can't remember that was took over for a little while, and then Cheryl Gilsledger came in as director. So, and here, I was... I was also here during a time when Louise left. Okay. And of course she was the founding director and been here forever. And so when she left, uh, there was kind of an interim director and then Sam Gatmeyer came and he was here for a couple of years and he left. So there was a lot of, there was a whole lot of movie. I think I worked in the five years, I worked with five different development directors. Wow. Yeah. Um, and two, two directors and one interim director. I think the only constant was Joanne at the press, Joanne Pascal. It seems so stable here now. <laughs> it does. But, uh, you know, if you probably look under the covers a little bit, you'll find there's been, you know, some movement. I mean, the, I, mean I think in... in the arts community, there's always a little bit of yeah unrest. Yeah. Not 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 with acrimony, but just there's always some 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 change. Yeah. Um, but the five development directors in five years that makes it hard to raise money. It does. Um, that makes it difficult to think long term as far as how you want to plan things out. Exactly. So, I guess from that standpoint, I'm thinking like you know that. It feels like you're in survival mode. Exactly. And I think that's was sort of natural to the place for a number of years. I mean, Louise was an amazing grant writer. And um, and working with her, I mean, we wrote a lot of grants. Uh, we got big grants from the Lannan Foundation and uh, NEA over and over. And, you know, if there was money out there, we were able to kind of get our hands on it eventually. Uh, so, to that extent, I didn't ever feel completely uh, cut off and having to really just, you know, work with pennies. Mm-hmm. We were fairly nimble, I felt like. So, so talk about the, the actual press, because that's, that's part of the history and legacy of this place, but isn't as obvious to people who are maybe just coming to Atlanta or just coming to this community. The press is probably the best-known part of this place on a national and international level. And Joanne and a, maybe two or two directors prior to her, I think there were three altogether, but I won't swear to that, um, just did exceptional work. I mean, there, and over the years, as Artist Press closed all over the world, uh, this nexus kept going, and it really wasn't until... Um, the around 2000-ish, and maybe a little after that, that they uh, felt like they needed to reorganize the press. And but they were working with artists and producing these limited edition, edition books for years, and there were 
what books that are at Printed Matter in New York that are in the Museum of Modern Art collection that are really valued commodities still today and really interesting experimental work. And they did great stuff. People know Nexus Press way better than they knew Nexus Contemporary Arts Center. I was also there during the name change. So it was just <laughs> a very fluid period. Seems like it. Just a, yeah. a, a very interesting time of, of transition in, in a, a lot of ways. Do you have a favorite, not favorite moment, but like a favorite, well, a favorite moment, you know, from, from that time or a favorite, you know, edition of the press? Do you have anything that you sort of think back on and say, I really enjoyed that? God, there's so many things that the press did. Uh, you really, at some point, should talk to Joanne. Not only if, uh, maybe you already have. I'm trying to get to everybody. So Yeah, yeah okay. she's she's the best spokesperson, and she's also hilarious, uh, and tells a good story, <laughs> um, and very energetic and sharp as a tack. So uh, um, I, I, would, I would get information about the press from her bigger bigger picture though during that that time frame i mean you've you've seen a few things come and go um and i think that in that time of the olympics you know when you were here during that time i think um even i feel like your career has kind of some of you kind of been in the right place at the right time for some very pivotal moments in atlanta's arts history so one of the things that I'm always curious about is um, how cynical is not the right word I'm trying to find. But you, you, when, when you, when you encounter new energy around certain things, I'm sure you've seen some version of that previously. And I wonder how excited you get, or if you can even like predict the outcome of of certain energies and efforts before it happens because you've seen two or different two or three different iterations of it in you know a previous moment yeah i uh, i have it's true and um atlanta has had a lot of um a lot of change and a, and a lot of expectations built around certain energies and then there's a dissipation of that and then there's a revival again from a newer younger group sometimes uh, are just different people who are coming in and out of Atlanta at times uh, I'm a fairly optimistic person okay. and um, and some would say naive uh, so it <laughs> I probably yes there's a cynical aspect but um, but I remain hopeful uh, with each new uh, kind of renaissance that happens. But yeah, there, the, the gallery scene in particular, you know, just it, it just it blossoms and then it dies off and then it blossoms and then it dies off and it's it's been that way the whole time. And there was such a, I mean, I I'm guilty of it myself as a teacher. I was always encouraging my best students at Georgia State, undergrad and grad, leave, go. And um, that's probably a mistake because we did lose a whole lot of people. Um, It happens. It happens. It 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 all works out in the end. I mean, we don't have... 
you know, I always the reason I love New York and still do is because it was such a city of opportunity. It's just things are happening all the time, and when one thing didn't work out, there was always something else that would pop up. And so you had you could maintain this uh, sense of something was going to happen at any moment very easily, and that is not as necessarily true here. And I guess I even want to ask that question, or maybe phrase my lead-in better. I think when I see new places pop up, or I see new collectives appear, what will happen is I'll go talk to an older artist, and they'll say, yeah, we had something like that 20 years ago. And so what I get from that is that a lot of times artists who are fresh out of school or not that, you know, soon, not that far removed from school, sometimes feel like because they don't see something and then they create something that that's the first time that it's been created in this space. And so sometimes I feel like you can learn if you knew that there was an entity, you know, if, if you knew that there was a similar movement 10 years ago, 15 years ago, some of those artists are probably still around. You could probably talk to them and figure out what they, you know, got right, what they got wrong, what they would want to see happen differently, and maybe just pull from that so that you're not starting from a place of, you know, from ground zero a lot of times. Well, you know, a couple of years ago, I'm part of a curatorial collective called Salvage, and we started with an exhibition at the Zuckerman called Hearsay that was... (laughs) just this group of projects that told uh, um, less familiar narratives and and interpretations of histories. Uh, And I can go into that, but I'm not too going to know. But anyway, it's what uh, sort of solidified in us this idea that to move forward and do other projects. And um, so one of the projects after that was a um, series of oral histories of women who had been very instrumental in uh, building what became kind of the, the core institutions of, of the arts in Atlanta in the 1970s. And of course that was helped along by a mayor who was giving away school buildings uh, to arts organizations and um, by federal funding that disappeared by um, uh, programs that allowed you to pay artists to have jobs within these institutions so that they could flourish and grow. And so there were a whole lot of ingredients, but at any rate, we um, did this series of interviews with uh, uh, poets and and curators and artists, uh, and one of them was Annette Cohn-Skelton. And so a conversation that came out of that was, gosh, between herself um, and me. Me, me and her. Um, and she said, why don't you teach a class in Georgia, contemporary Georgia art history, so that there's this, you know, that we could offer at MOCA GA that really kind of brings this information back up into the light so that people can see some of the things that have happened in the past and um, some of the great, you know, experimental work that was done. God, there's, there's just been so much. Um, so, I mean, never have done that, but I Maybe think it's... someone st- yeah. will hear this and get inspired. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing because you learn art history in, and, and sometimes it's based on geography, sometimes it's based on movements, whatever. 
But uh, you don't really study the localized version of that unless you happen to live in New York or another major art center. Yeah. And so a whole lot of stuff gets lost. And I think, um, was that part of the uh, ATL Studies yeah. um, project? Yeah. I did, I did read um, some of that, and I, in thinking about that piece and what you're talking about, I believe there are or there were different models of funding and structuring arts in different capacities from a policy level from a funding level from an organizational level that while maybe you can't duplicate those things exactly there's still some gems you can pull from previous iterations of of trying to sustain a community in in this city in this footprint um so Hopefully someone will, will, will hear us talking about this and, <laughs> and get inspired to, to go and, uh, and dig, that, dig that up because, because what often happens in this current era of, of digital media, um, you know, Atlanta isn't great at preserving history on a lot of different levels. So if, you, if, if you're starting in 2018, there may not be a great place to even go back to to figure out what happened to even pull that forward so um did you bring any other goodies uh oh uh well these are just all related to projects that were happening so i don't know you know how far you want to go down that rabbit hole um but uh wherever wherever you want to start just pick out something that looks interesting uh, i mean it all is interesting but just pick out something that that maybe brings up a, a good fond memory okay uh, well, one of the first biennials I did here was uh, I did a whole bunch of studio visits when I came because it was just shortly after I had moved to Atlanta. And uh, so I just went and saw everybody that even vaguely asked me and hinted that they wanted me to come by. And um, I, for whatever reason, and it could just be, you know, the way I was sifting information, but... Uh, there was a lot of funny work being made, um, uh, funny haha and funny psychologically, and uh, so I ended up doing a kind of thematic biennial, and um, there were a lot of people that were showing for the first time in it, uh, people like Kojo um, and uh, Chris Vereen, uh, Roe Etheridge. Uh, there were a whole lot of people that um, ended up making bigger jumps um, that were in that first show and it was it was uh, it was just a, a kind of crazy funny wacky show uh, that set the mood for what I was going to do for the next five years um, that really wasn't much of a story was it? It was a good story some, some great some great names for people to investigate if they haven't heard of those names you know before I think so one of the, the things that I, I, I going back to previous moment yeah I don't know if we have many multi-generational moments in the arts community in Atlanta as often as we probably should so you don't get in my opinion you don't get as many opportunities to see or maybe just even know of, of artists at different phases of their careers, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, kind of in, the, in one capsule to understand sort of, one, the arc of what a career kind of looks like, but then, two, some of these names. A lot of times, if you come into a city, you only kind of know who's being talked about in that moment. Right. No, and so true. if you don't know those, those other names, again, these artists, and some 
ways are still here. They're not, you know, or their their work is 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 still here. And so it's difficult to draw that multi generational line so people can see the you know the short term history of kind of who's doing work where. Yeah. No. It's um, and I. It, and I realize that to some extent it sounds like I'm trying to dwell on the past and I'm not, I'm very forward looking but it's, it is interesting to me how um, just whole bodies of information can disappear and um, even within a couple of years it's, 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 it's a little shocking looking back on it but um, I did do a, a, a recreation of a show that I had never seen that had happened prior to my arrival while I was long gone from Atlanta. And um, it was a group of very conceptual artists who had been asked to do a show at the High Museum, I think in the 70s. Uh, And a lot of them were still around. And so I did a recreation of that show and uh, then added in contemporary work. So some of those people, it was a reintroduction. Some of them had maintained a kind of visibility and legibility over the years anyway and so there was some knowledge that existed among those people who were paying attention but uh, so that was a kind of interesting experiment in uh, uh, bringing up something and looking at how it was contextualized at the time uh, within the art world of a different period and and then reimagining it to um, Kind of fit within a contemporary, a more contemporary dialogue. Um, that was that was that was one strategy. I tried a bunch of different things. Um, I had read about the Rural Studio when I was still in New York. Um, there was a big article about their work, and I got really interested in it. And uh, so, do you? The Rural Studio is based out of Auburn, I think. But they uh, build experimental, low-caste housing, primarily in Hale County, Alabama, and it's really inventive. Um, and they're, and the, it's also kind of a, 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 a live-work environment for the architecture school, uh, in that the architects not only figure out the designs and and maximize um, the ability to build these. Most, they start out houses, uh, low-cost houses, um, with very inventive and very inexpensive materials, but they actually go down and build them. Mm. So they really have the experience of, of seeing how it works and kind of problem-solving as they go. Just really fascinating work. I think, isn't, isn't there a collaboration between them and maybe Serenby, I think? Uh, yeah, they have two... Uh, Houses because they've they've never done anything commercial. Okay. And so, um, uh, yeah, Serenby has worked. Their two guest cottages gotcha. okay. are uh, designed by Rural Studio. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but and they've done a they've done a lot of work. But anyway, they hadn't really shown been shown within the context of the art world, and so invited them to do a project. And we were actually going to uh, we got pretty far down the line of. The bridge that's out here over the railroad tracks. Um, uh, Sam Motby, who was the founder of Rural Studio, wanted to turn it into a kind of uh, an active and and real homeless shelter. Uh, It was a makeshift version of that at the time. And um, so he wanted to 
utilize the think tank atmosphere of the rural studio to design and build something that would actually function in a way that was at a much um, better level. And, um, and so we started going through city permissions and got really far along on the process of doing it and um, amazingly far for the city of Atlanta. Um, and, and then Sam found out he was very sick. And so that altered the project. So we ended up doing um, a different kind of uh, more of an expose of or a not expose, but a sort of a history, a chronology um, through models and other things. And then brought in the Madhousers and okay. some of uh, the more activist guerrilla groups that were working in Atlanta, doing the same kind of work but in a different way. Um, so I tried to do things like that. I did a show um, called The Looking Game that I think was hugely unpopular with artists, uh, especially <laughs> the artists that were in it. Um, I thought it was a really good idea uh, because I had seen this show. Um, I think that it was started at the Guggenheim. I saw it at the Philadelphia Museum uh, called Relly Holover. And it was uh, based on... It was a John Cage experiment, okay. um, and they had a computerized version of I Ching, and uh, so they they pulling from the collection. Cage, I think Cage was directly involved. Um, they picked a bunch of objects from all over the museum in decorative arts and uh, you know sculpture, painting, whatever, and uh, they hung them on the wall based on a throwing of the I Ching, and uh, so they put things in. Um, in different, in kind of pairs that, you know, people naturally, when they come to things, they wonder why those two things stick together, and they start making up reasons for why they're together, formal, conceptual, whatever. And um, so then they would throw the I Ching again. They did it every day, and they would move things around. So every time you came back, you uh, there were just different juxtapositions. So one day you might have an Eames desk next to a Chinese, you know, a Ming Dynasty vase or something, and you could draw parallels between those. Um, and then the next time that same Ming vase might be next to a, a you know, a Frankenthaler painting. You know, it, it, so it was this constant uh, regeneration of. An understanding of something, and I really liked that as an idea. Why didn't artists like it? Well, um, I think they thought it was weird, um, and I did it in a slightly different way. What I did, I invited a group of non-objective painters, um, and and then I had a think tank here for a while that a reading group that was started that. Uh, had a bunch, whole bunch of people all over town in different disciplines coming to talk to, and um, I got them involved in uh, selecting objects, mostly mostly visual cues, that would be put up in conjunction with the paintings. So these objects could serve as cues or clues into understanding the work, uh, and you could you know you could use them or not. But rather than text, it was these visual objects um, that could lend a different kind of understanding to the reading of a particular piece of art. I don't know. They didn't like it. They didn't like it. <laughs> I 
I thought it was kind of fun. Well, I mean, you know, but it, they, I think they think I was playing with their art. Oh. Um, you know. But so, but staying, staying there though, because with, well, on two levels. One, because you are an artist. Yeah. You know, outside of your, your curatorial studies, um, as a curator. Well, as an as an, an artist, I, I presume you have space to play as yeah. an artist. Yeah. As a as a curator, how do you create that same space to play? Because you know, I guess in many ways you're you're playing with, with other folks' work. Yeah. So how do you do that in a in a way that helps you to grow as a curator? I think if I were smarter, I would have You are smart. Stuff. I would have done it in a much more um, focused and disciplined way. I mean, I looked at Sarah and her practice, for instance, and I look at the work that she did, for instance, with this last exhibition. The Sarah uh, Emerson. Uh, Sarah Higgins. Oh, Higgins. Okay. Sorry. See? Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like... No, too many, we had too many Sarahs in that project. But, yeah, Sarah Higgins and her work with Tamashi Jackson. Mm-hmm. I think that is a really interesting kind of example of a curator and artist working together to produce a project, because they really did. They, I mean, it was hand in hand, um, which is a different level of engagement than um, I think anything I've ever done, but a very intentional, very focused um, effort. And it, you know, it does talk about the change to some degree in the curatorial role, because it is much more of um, being a very visible part of the um, what's on view yourself you're, you're a part of it um, which is different I, I think just by personality am, uh, if I never had to go out in front of anybody ever and do anything I would be perfectly happy um, even though obviously I just gave you an example of me messing with people's art you did um, but, uh, no, I mean, I think I find my joy in, in, in putting things together mm-hmm. and in seeing things. Help me understand, the not the role of the, the curator, but it seems to me, and you would have more visibility with this than I, than, I, than I do, that the curators themselves are now celebrities. Yes. And I get the sense that it wasn't always that way. It was not. Um, so where... And when did that shift happen, as you kind of assess it? I think it's been relatively recently, because when I was working at the Guggenheim, there were still curators working there that were uh, coming out of MFA programs and had just you know been there so long they were in this position of power within the museum. But um, and then there were more art historians coming along and PhDs, and then as the field got more and more professionalized, uh, and curatorial studies programs uh, came into being, and then people were training specifically to be a curator, which was never quite the case, and you became um, you were either you came out of the '70s sort of. Uh, being involved with artists, loving art, maybe deciding you weren't uh, yourself uh, wanting to stay an artist, but you wanted to stay involved. And so you started organizing things. Um, So there was that path, and then there were 
uh, art historians who uh, specialized in areas, and as they became more specialist, uh, they were able to create kind of visual uh, manifestations of their scholarship. And so those were the traditional sort of paths, and I think now it's it's just completely different. And um, and I think a lot of people don't understand that that curators don't always just come from the arts anymore; they're they're coming from all over, and they're taking a different kind of tack on um, on on their role as a a provider of information. And I think also a, a provider of of context. Yeah. Um, the role of the curator, maybe it's because of social media where we can provide more visibility for these types of roles, but you are, you know, along with the institution, the curator at this institution becomes, that's where the 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 sizzle is in terms of the, the public. Oh, this person is now this curator, great. And that all of a sudden becomes an, uh, an important piece of how you respond to that place. Um, but it's also interesting about how, kind of how you kind of laid out how folks get into that pathway or maybe evolve into that space because as an artist, your ways of making a living don't always come from your art initially. So you have to do other things. And I feel Forever. like... ever. I feel like like teaching was 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 that path for and is that path for a lot of artists. Yes. Um, and maybe the curatorial approach or the that pathway sometimes becomes, as I understand it, maybe more, a tad bit more more daunting for some artists because then you're now in charge of someone else's work, whereas before you kind of see, saw your arts friends colleagues as peers and so now you're you know now you're in this power elevated power space where that can feel uncomfortable for some artists as I've you know understood it to a certain extent yeah um so how have you navigated that well I I really don't consider myself a good example of how to go forward through all of this and I have routinely counseled students over the years don't do what I do. Um, don't divide yourself this way. Uh, you know, when I was in graduate school, I, I had a seminarian that was just, he was so focused on the idea of uh, selecting a path and never deviating from it. And I resisted that with everything in my being. And, um, and I, you know, that was probably a poor choice on my part. But I have always maintained this thing uh, where I feel like I have one foot in the artist camp and I have one foot in the museum camp. And, um, and I think that when you make these divisions in your life, um, you are asking for trouble. I mean, they serve each other in a lot of ways. You learn a lot. Um, I feel very fortunate in having had the time and space to occupy both worlds, but I don't know that it's the best way to really um, go deep. Hmm. 
asking for trouble. Go back to that. Don't name names. No, no. <laughs> I, I, I know better than that. I hope by now. Um, no, I just think that, uh, you know, there are, there are people who resist me today as being both a practitioner and a curator. Um, that's just a small part of it. That's the lesser part because it really doesn't matter. I'm still going to do what I'm going to do. But uh, I think that I feel like I have this divided mind, you know, and I can I, I go back and forth and contemplating a curatorial project, you know, in the middle of the night, my brain is moving things around in my head in, in a space that is imaginary and and then um, and then the next day or the next evening I'm got you know another line of of and another conversation going on in my head and it can be confusing and it also can be a struggle in terms of your time uh, because there is a point and I was able to experience it last year, and it's what kind of what reminded me was uh, I had this Fulbright, and I was in Dublin, and I was working like three days a week at the Irish Museum of Modern Art, and then the rest of the time I was free, and I had a studio too, and I got into a level of connection with my work, my studio work, that I haven't had in a long time. I used to have as a consistent part of my world and it's a different place because when you get there um, you don't have to think about what you're doing anymore there isn't that pause of what what you know uh, you just do it and you start learning from the doing and that is a different place and hard to cheat when you're trying to do everything else. With that being said, because you occupy those multiple spaces, do you feel like people trust you more or trust you less? I really don't know. I, I have always gotten along with artists because I have a just, uh, it, it's natural to me. I understand that language. Yeah. Um, and I'm comfortable with it, and I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Well, I guess because you are comfortable with that, it would seem like it might be easier to develop some trust with artists because they understand she's also an artist, so she gets what I'm trying to you know, put into the world. So there may be more comfort there in that there is some sort of common language that you're not coming just from a curatorial perspective. And if you're in a curatorial perspective or an academic perspective, I feel like there's also other language that you can draw on to make that space comfortable for you as well with other people. So it, it, to me, it, it seems though as though it, while there's some internal grappling, yeah. it may make your external fluidity more, a little bit easier. Yeah, I mean, I would like to believe that's true. And I you know, certainly feel like I have had a good experience um, with people most of the way through. Uh, you know, you're always going to, you know, personalities you're yeah. always going to run into. Tell me about your fascination with Joan Fontaine. <laughs> oh, oh. Um, well, that 
really came out of that particular movie, mm-hmm. which I had watched with my mother, the movie Rebecca. Um, and, um, and my uh, deep craziness uh, in identifying with the character that she played in that film. Gotcha. Um, yeah, embarrassing <laughs> to admit, but unfortunately very true. Um, I want to thank you because I feel like you've always been you've always been kind to me whenever we see each other, whenever we have time to like chat or talk or catch up for coffee. I feel like you've always been open and, and willing to to be uh, um, just giving to me. So I, I, I thank you. Um, thank you for for all of those different moments that we've had a chance to cross paths. And I always get excited whenever I see you because we don't cross paths quite that often, but it's always fun whenever I do get a chance to see you. Um, last question, because it's a very pertinent question for the people who will see any visual remnants of this conversation. Where does the name Dub Teaser come from? <laughs> um, well, I, because I'm Teresa, uh, somewhere along in college, uh, my friends started just always referring to me as T. And then because I was with a group of very intelligent, funny people, and I was the shy, retiring one, uh, they started calling me teaser because I would not complete sentences in their environment. They were they were the talkers. I was the listener, um, but they um, dubbed me as teaser. Okay, because uh, that's your Instagram name. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, well, we have to figure out where that came from. So thank you for that little bit of backstory. Yeah. And last year, it also got to do double duty as Dublin. Oh, all right. See, okay, all right. Um, any last any last words in this moment as we as we wrap up? Anything you want you want to get off your chest? Anything <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't hit on? You didn't get to any random people who came to mind as you were talking who you wanted to at least sort of put their name out into the into the world? Anything? Go for it. Oh no, I, I, there's there's too much and not enough at the same time. But mm-hmm. I just want to say thank you. Oh. I appreciate it, and I have really enjoyed. Our conversations when we've had them too. It's great. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Teresa Bramlett Reeves, thank you for your time. Thank you.